Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels, and you are listening on Blog Talk Radio, actually, uh, Blake Radio, uh, Rainbow Soul Channel, and we're also broadcasting over Facebook. Okay, I'd like to remind people also, they can contact me at healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. And also at facebook.com forward slash healing with Dr. Daniels. And um, during the show, you can leave comments either in the chat room or on Facebook. All right, awesome. So today's topic is why you should read foreign newspapers in English, even if you're not traveling in that country. Yes. So a lot of people... um, believe that uh, news is news is news. But some things happen in the United States and they have a ripple effect or something makes things happen in other countries. And things happen in other countries that have an equivalent or a parallel effect in the United States, but they are things that are not reported either because they don't happen in the United States or because the uh, political, cultural filters are different. And so when you see something written in English in another country about what's happening in that country, you can take a look at it and say, aha, oh, that's what's going on. Uh, Let's see, someone wants to know, how can you call in, and the guest call-in number is for the radio show, 914-338-0695. And number again is 914-338-0695. So let me see if I can type that in. All right. 
So today's show is only 30 minutes, so we might not be able to have time for very many questions. <laughs> I'm looking at the chat room here. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some... Uh, articles in the newspaper in India. So I, I was just in India a few months ago, and while I was there, I stayed at a hotel that was so kind as to provide me with a newspaper every day. And they were so culturally sensitive, they actually gave the newspaper in English, which uh, I thank them. It was the Ravitz, R-A-V-I-T-Z, as in the Ritz. Okay, so but it was Ravitz. Right. So this is an interesting um, article it's called Bill Plans Synergies Among Medical Streams. This is in English, but like you, I didn't know what that headline meant. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. But there's a process going on in the United States where uh, the government and insurance companies and you can say medical schools possibly are recognizing alternative healing modalities. And so this article talks about a similar process in India and what's going on. And so I'm going to um, read you the article, it's pretty brief, and explain to you what's going on from their perspective and the parallels here in the United States. All right. So Ayurveda says, homeopathy and Ayurvedic doctors may be allowed to practice allopathy after a bridge course. So allopathy is a uh, what licensed doctors in the United States do, which is they prescribe medications manufactured by drug companies, just to make help you understand that. And the theory among all this is if a person is hot, you make them colder. If a person hurts, you take the pain away, uh, give them a painkiller. Blood pressure is high, you make it lower. Blood sugar is high, you give them a drug to make it lower. So it's opposites. So if a person has one thing, you treat it with the opposite of that thing. Okay. So doctors pursuing the Indian systems of medicine, including Ayurveda and homeopathy, may be allowed to practice allopathy after clearing a bridge course, says a bill introduced into the lawmaking body. All right. The National Medical Commission bill seeks to replace the Medical Council of India with a new body that was approved by the government on Friday. So things are moving along quickly here. And so um, this clause says that to enhance the inter interface between homeopathy, Indian systems of medicine, and the modern systems of medicine. And it also says the modern systems, not allopathy. So allopathy is already superior because it's more modern. All right. So Bill has also proposed that specific educational modules or programs for developing bridges across the systems and promoting medical pluralism can be done with the approval of all the members present in the joint sitting. So it provides for the constitution of four autonomous boards entrusted with conducting undergraduate and postgraduate education, assessment and rating of medical institutions, and registration of practitioners under the National Medical Commission. So what this means is practitioners of homeopathy and Ayurveda now have to register with the government. This is new. The commission will have a government-nominated chairman and members, and the board members will be selected by a search committee, and a 25-member commission will be replaced and elected. So the proposed measure has been strongly opposed by the Indian Medical Association, 
which claimed that it will cripple the functioning of the profession and by making it answerable to the bureaucracy and non-medical administrators. Interesting. The bill also proposes in the sequencer a common entrance exam and licensure exam which all medical graduates will have to clear to get practicing licenses. The licensure exam will have to be conducted within three years after Parliament passes it. All right, so that sounds like gobbledygook, but that's actually pretty substantial. What it's saying is that all practitioners now are becoming answerable to the government, and so what this does is it politicizes the healing practice much like the uh, 1911 event after the Flexner Report and the creation of medical boards. So that's one thing. So this separates the uh, practitioner from the patient. And so now a practitioner might be paying for one encounter, but it's the government that controls the healer's ability to see thousands or even hundreds of people a year. So this makes the wishes of any one uh, patient or even a patron irrelevant. So a patron um, is someone who, don't, who gives large amounts of money to an individual. And so in, in the United States in the early 1900s and the 1800s, it was common for a doctor to have a patron. That's one person who was a client who really liked the doctor and who actually um, might donate large sums or a substantial sum of money to that doctor. All right. What else happens? So you have these three branches that have been mentioned, which is homeopathy, Ayurveda, and then allopathy. And so what's going to happen is people are going to go, for whatever reason, to one school or another to train. And when they graduate, they will be an Ayurvedic doctor, a homeopathy doctor, or an allopathic doctor. Allopathic is basically the dominant form of doctors in the United States. Okay. Or I should say not the dominant, it's the only, it's, it's, it's a monopoly. Okay, so what you need to know about the allopathic system is if a doctor can get you to take one dollar of medication, then it will result in three dollars of additional medical therapy needed to treat the side effects of that one dollar in medication. Now, some medications like aspirin have even a bigger multiplier. But, and so once you take the one dollar worth of medicine, now you need three dollars worth of medicine. You take that $3 worth of medicine, now you need $27 or $9 worth of medicine. You take your $9 worth of medicine, and now you need $27 worth of medicine. And it has literally an exponential curve. And so the amount of economic activity, read profit and financial benefit to the industry or to the profession, is astronomically higher than, let's say, if you, if you use... Um, homeopathy, let's just say for the sake of discussion that homeopathy is ineffective, then for every dollar of homeopathic medicine someone takes, there's, no, there's not going to be any side effects. person might get better, might not, but you're not going to need $3 additional homeopathic intervention and then $9 and then $27 and then $81 and so on. So. What happens then, if you are practicing homeopathy or even Ayurveda, the amount of intervention a person is going to need is not going to increase exponentially because you're not making them sicker as you go. So the very therapy you're giving them is not creating the increased need. All right, what's this got to do with the article? 
review that people train in all three and then have them all take a final common pathway, if they are financially motivated at all, they will all end up being allopathic doctors because then they can pay their bills, they can live in a nicer house, and things will go better with them. So what's happening, what this bill is really all about, is usurping, subordinating, morphing, transforming all practitioners into allopathic practitioners. And so you can see here the groundwork being laid to convert and change um, all the medical offerings over to allopathic only. So that's very, very interesting. But again, <coughs> excuse me, you would not find that in um, a U.S. paper because, of course, it's not an event that's happening in the United States. So that, uh, that, that wouldn't be something that you would read about. All right, here's an interesting one. We have enough, I think, for about three today. Medicos launch indefinite strike. So again, this is, this is English is the language it's written in, but they use terms that might not be common in the United States. So Medicos are basically doctors. These are doctors, okay? Doctors and people who are training to be doctors. And so um, house surgeons, house meaning hospital, surgeons and postgraduate doctors in government medical colleges, that means they have government medical schools, uh, in India. These are medical schools that are just plain run by the government. Launched an indefinite stir on Friday, um, and this is a strike. So the strike had been called by Association of the House Surgeons and postgraduate doctors to protect against the government's decision to raise the retirement age of doctors in medical colleges from 60 to 62 years and in the state health service from 56 to 60 years. Stop right there. There's a few things wrong, not only wrong, but areas of concern here. First of all, that means you have a lot of doctors who are totally dependent upon the government, not your patients. And so they follow orders from the government, not your patients. And so this is something that we see happening in the United States with government-sponsored and government-controlled payment plans. The will or desires of the patient become pretty much irrelevant. But there's another thing here. The retirement age is going to be changed from 60 to 62 and from 56 to 60 different categories of doctors. But wait, why should a doctor care if his retirement age changes by two years? Are these doctors that financially dependent on the system that when they stop being a doctor, they're penniless, and their pension from the government is the only money they have? That's, that's a question. Um, and so what this suggests is extreme financial dependence. So in the United States, we have something called Medicare, which kicks in at age 65. And so there's talk of raising it to 67. But many people, and you can take it early at 62, of course. So most people have some discretion about that uh, age range. In other words, although most people do it at 65, a lot of people do it at 62. A lot of people say, I'll wait till 67. So if this, is, if this two years is worth striking over, this suggests extreme economic dependence between the doctors and uh, the government. So, so these doctors 
are not able to put aside money. Um, they're, they're not building a second rental house next door to the one they live in. So in the space of their career, either they're not able to or mentally they don't believe in taking any responsibility in terms of their retirement. Okay, but it goes um, further than that. So meanwhile, uh, the joint council body, which is spearheading the struggle, so they were forced into indefinite strike by the government apathy. This year, 44 persons, including four principals, are retiring from government medical colleges. Out of the 145 posts created in the Department of Medicine Education, 80 are for the first-year students subjects for the new medical colleges. Such appointments will not make much of a difference to the real problems faced by the medical colleges, he said. So the government is saying, well, we want people to work two years longer so we'll have more working doctors. And so the doctors are saying, wait a minute, that's not going to make that big a difference. And so um, medical students boycotted classes and house surgeons and senior, senior residents um, did not work. So the problem here is the extreme dependence on the government instead of their patients. And so Again, this is creating a system where the doctors really just want to know uh, what does the government want me to do, and uh, and I'll do that. And so this creates a um, situation for the patient, which is exactly what many Americans are trying to flee when they go to systems like Ayurveda, um, and homeopathy. So what this is saying in the, in the paper is basically that Ayurveda may not be a reasonable system to seek refuge if as a patient you want self-determination. Now this is my favorite one and probably the last one we'll have time for, and as you can see that, lured by blood money. So move this way, yeah, okay. So you can see here we have a uh, we have one, two, three, four, five people in this picture. We have a photograph here of somebody, and this lady looks like she might have a smile on her face, but if you get a better resolution, um, she's actually not very healthy, happy at all. And then you see these these four other four people who are who are very dissatisfied. So what happened here? So someone was lured. That means they were dragged in or attracted by money, and this was blood money. So it says a growing number of people are volunteering for clinical trials in order to supplement their income. And so-and-so reports a disturbing trend that is putting at risk the health of several volunteers as well as the reliability of trial data. So trial means research data. So research studies are being done, and the data from those research studies is no longer reliable because of people desperately trying to earn money through being medical subjects or being or participating in these studies. And so, again, this is written in English in a newspaper in India from their perspective and their understanding. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> All right. So um, in late May 
2017, two weeks before he died, a 53-year-old father of three, and that's pictures of his family, uh, checked into a facility run by a clinical research organization. This person was taking part in a clinical trial for sleep aid called melatonin. The trial was a bioequivalent study. It means a study mandated by the FDA to show that a generic that they want to market is biologically equal to a drug already on the market that has already been approved by the FDA. So this is a trial just to show that the generic drug they want to sell is equal to something already on the market. All right. And this person was going to be paid 20,000 rupees for participating, as with 59 other volunteers in the trial. All right. So this person is going to be paid 20,000. So we divide that by five. It's 4,000. We divide that by 10. It's $400 US. Okay. As were the other 59 people in the trial. So in the morning of the trial, this person ate a large breakfast, possibly, well, we're going to take a word for it, chicken, bread, and eggs. All right, keep that in your mind. And we're going to presume this person eats chicken, bread, and eggs daily and not much else. All right, we're just going to make that guess. And then he, ate, then he took two of these melatonin so that the meal's effects could be tested on the medicine's concentration in his body. Uh, these events are reconstructed from a document called informed consent form that he signed before the trial. Next, investigators inserted a thin tube called a cannula into his vein to collect blood. Over a period of the day, the cannula remained in his arm and blood was collected 11 times. Finally, on May 27th, the investigation ended. Okay, so uh, May 27th, the investigation ended. The first round of the trial was over, but this person was to come back was was supposed to come back for a second one. He then left for his home, a tiny mosquito-infested brick house in the cotton fields of this particular village. He lived there with his wife and three sons. He lost the the uh, people doing the clinical trial lost contact with him. So investigators did not know. On May 29th, that's two days later when he grew feverish with severe back pain and swelling in his arm, the arm that the cannula was inserted in, of course. Even though the informed consent form he signed states that volunteers could contact the research group if they felt unwell during the trial. Okay. So, an implement, so they, he went to the hospital where he was diagnosed as having inflammation of the vein where the cannula was inserted, which can occur due to intravenous cannulation. Doctor also said he had a compressed disc in his spine, uh, irrelevant. Even as he began the prescribed treatment on the evening of June 2nd, this person suddenly collapsed in his home, dead. Dead. All right. Now, while the candle was in his arm, he had blood removed on 11 occasions. Uh, we can guess at least a teaspoon, possibly a tablespoon. Uh, so there's a fair amount of blood. Then he lived in a mosquito-infested place. Mosquitoes only live in hot places, so wherever he lived was hot. We can also guess he got dehydrated. Another thing we can guess is that his diet of 
eggs, chicken, and bread didn't have enough iron and other supplements in it to offset the effect of the blood being drawn. And so this guy is dehydrated, he's malnourished, he collapses, and he dies. All right. So the death set off a series of traumatic events for his family when they began sorting through his possessions. They discovered the form he had signed to participate in the lab study. And the family had no idea that he was a volunteer. All they knew was he worked as a cook at weddings in Hyderabad, earning $6 a day. We thought he was traveling around with catering companies. This was a shock to us, says 25-year-old youngest son and the only person in the family who has studied beyond high school. There were more unhappy surprises when a local police station began investigating the case, seeking responses from the research company. So it revealed that the study was his ninth trial with them. So he had done nine research studies with them, possibly each removing more or less a half pint of blood. So nine times half pint, 4.5 pints. You only have 11 pints in your blood system. This kid, this guy is basically exsanguinated. They took his blood out of him. They bled him to death. But just guessing. All right. So even though he was over 50, the identity card he submitted to the company showed him to be 38 years old. This was a risky misrepresentation because the study was only for people under 45 years. Whoa, back up. So now we understand that, that this study, first of all, is being done for the FDA. So this is a company that plans to use data in this study in the United States to approve a drug for use on U.S. citizens. In case you missed that, that's what's going on here. Now, we know this person died in the study. That's number one. Other thing we know is the people in the study believe his age to be under 45, and he was actually 53. So the second thing it tells you is when you read a study, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a patient, um, or even an FDA official, and the study says our participants were between the ages of 20 and 40, if the study was done in India, we don't know how old those people were. So the parameters of the study are not valid because they're not, um, they're not accurate. So people can be in a study, ha- have an age of, 40, of 53, and the study believes they're under 45. So now we know the parameters of the study are unreliable. We know people die and um, get this. And the research company discovered his true age only when the newspapers reported his death. People doing his study didn't even know he died. So you say, well, how can they not know he died? <laughs> I went to medical school, so I can fill in this detail for you. Um, so whenever you do a study, let's say you have 100 people who start the study, 90 people finish, 10 don't finish the study. What does the researcher say? He says, these people were lost to follow-up. We didn't have a phone number for them. We couldn't call their house and nobody answered. Um, whatever, we couldn't find them to complete the data. And so, obviously, this includes people who die. And so then, instead of reporting that a person died, they're just lost to follow-up. And then a drug is now submitted to the FDA, 100% safety according to the data, approved for U.S. use, and 
citizens in the United States and doctors in the United States use this drug, believing it to be safe, and of course, United States citizens die. And in the United States, at least 128,000 Americans every year die from properly prescribed medicine. And that's because these are the kind of research studies that are done to validate the safety of the medication. Now, the melatonin they're, test they're testing, by the way, is totally synthetic melatonin, not naturally occurring melatonin. So this is a story written in English in a newspaper in another country. But it gives us incredible insight into what's going on in our country and an event that's affecting every day the lives of Americans and leading to the death of many, many Americans. So for every one person who dies in a medical trial, this drug is released to 330 million Americans. And you can imagine how many Americans die um, from drugs with data like this serving as a basis of approval. So it's really um, amazing. And I think this is a compelling reason why people should definitely, 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 uh, you know, find a newspaper in another country, whatever, and just subscribe to it. This one is, it's called The Hindu, and it's Saturday, December 30th is the date. So the paper is The Hindu. Sure, they'd be happy to ship it to you in the United States. But a lot of things happen in other countries that affect us directly, uh, people who are in more modern or first world type situations. And while it's certainly unfortunate that this person died, and uh, it would be better that he never died, there is actually dispute and people arguing as to if his family should be compensated and how much they should be compensated. And, and these discussions, of course, are ongoing. However, the corollary to this thing is people like this are dying, but their death is being used as a pretense to create even more death uh, in a neighborhood near you, maybe even in your very home in the near future. So what do you do? The answer is you have to presume that the research that drug uh, validation is based on is probably not that reliable. And they mentioned that this person, he was poor, he lied about his uh, age. And the truth of the matter is this happens in studies in the United States. People have called me up and said, Dr. Daniels, I participated in a medical study. I didn't have any money. I needed the money. I started taking the drug. I got side effects. I got really sick. And I had to go to work, so I just stopped taking the drug, but continued to show up for my study evaluations and, figure, and fill out my side effect form. Of course, the person wasn't having any side effects because they weren't taking the drug. And so when we doctors prescribe a drug, we read something called the PDR, physician death reference. And I noticed that for a lot of drugs, it said, these horrific side effects exist, but after the person takes the drug for a while, they tend to go away. No, the people in your study stopped taking the drug and pretended they were still taking it because they wanted to get paid. And so this, again, gives the doctors erroneous, inaccurate information that they are basing their prescribing on. So of course, the solution is not to take a prescription drug. That's one answer. Another answer is to not take any drug that has not been on the market at least six years. Even then, you want to read the research. And you want to read what's called post-marketing um, post studies, which means information that became available from users in the United States after 
the FDA approves it. And that's really the only data you can, re you can uh, count on. Um, so these studies are very much uh, corrupted and the data is unreliable. And this is something uh, that when you read this in a foreign newspaper, you can understand kind of where the inaccuracy uh, comes from and why it's so bad. All right, let me see. We can take one or two questions. All right, Dr. Dennis, thank you for the vitality capsules. I'm taking four capsules a day. Does that mean I have to keep taking it for life, or when do I stop taking it? I use the restroom twice a day now. It's helping, but I'm just wondering if I need to keep taking it. Thank you. Most people like to take You could take it for life. The truth of the matter is, um, first of all, you need to take a few more so you can get up to three bad movements a day. You'll feel even better. And most people find that after a while of using the vitality capsules, they need fewer of them. But people find they feel so much better using them that they prefer to use them for life. And they're perfectly safe. You're basically talking about um, garlic, cayenne, aloe, natural um, leaves, vegetables, and roots uh, that are unprocessed, so it's perfectly safe. Okay. Okay, question is, I had, past tense, a really bad problem with fruits and breads before turpentine. I'm on turpentine now for two months, and I can handle fruits way better than before, but still have digestion issues and candida. To, kill, to fix my digestion with turpentine, with turpentine, should I switch to a high-fruit diet like you wrote in your first Candida Cleanse ebook? No. The high-fruit diet in the first ebook was written there because my co-marketer was a raw foodist. Um, so now I'm just doing my own marketing, so I was able to revise it and delete that. But I have never cured Candida on a high-fruit diet. Maybe a lot of bananas. No, definitely not. <laughs> right now I have green juices, cooked millet, brown rice, steamed veggies, and a big salad every day. And I eat like this since more than a year, but I have the feeling my body is not getting nutrition I put in my mouth. Um, actually, your body is not getting nutrition that you're not putting in your mouth. So at this point, you need to add some animal products. I would recommend some liver, and you'll see a big, big change. Recipe for liver is salt, pepper, onions, and liver. Okay. Oh my God. Okay, I heard about turpentine cure and have been using it for three weeks and applying it topically over my lungs. All right, so you cannot exceed a daily dose of one teaspoon a day of turpentine. So you might be using more than a turpentine on your lungs every day. Initially, this might seem okay but you might get seizures after mm, a few weeks. So I don't recommend that at all. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, don't do that. So instead, put a Vicks Vapor Rub over your lungs. That way you get a small enough turpentine dose that it's not going to be dangerous for you. All right. That is all the questions that we have time for. Thank you very much, and as always, think happens and don't sign up for those research studies. <laughs>